Alrighty. Good morning, church. Hey, glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it out and uh, have it in front of you at this time. Turn with us to the book of 1 Corinthians. We have been in the midst of a series going through the book of 1 Corinthians called Christians Gone Wild. And uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you have discovered that the early church was not perfect and uh, that ours isn't either, and uh, that Paul is dealing with a, a rather wild bunch here. And uh, we have lots of lessons to learn from them, a lot of cultural similarities. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we find ourselves. We've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians at a rather brisk pace, and we are going to continue to take a rather brisk pace. Uh, we hope to cover all of chapter 11. Uh, if you have the Pew Bible in front of you, it is page 930. 930. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I trust that you're there or you're close. So let's pray one more time, and then we'll dive right into uh, this sermon. Submission and snobbery. Submission and snobbery. Proper practices in worship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time. Thank you that we can open your word. Thank you that you have preserved it down through the ages for us. Thank you that it is wholly trustworthy and reliable, and that through your scripture you reveal truth to us. In particular this morning, uh, you speak to a church of many, many years ago that had trouble in its church gathering, and you sought to inform them and to correct them, and I pray that you would do that for this church that gathers some 2,000 years after that fact, that you would speak to us even today on these very helpful and practical and necessary elements of our worship as we gather together in the name of Jesus to worship the one true living God. Father, I pray also, as even we listen, that we would be preparing, that our hearts would be preparing with thanksgiving and joy and examination as we prepare ourselves to remember the body and the blood of Christ. What a wonderful gift you've given us. We thank you for it. Be with us, guard us and protect us. Uh, Be with our minds that they would not wonder that we might give ourselves fully to you and to your word. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, whose church we are, In his name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. I'd like to share a story with you that was once uh, first told by uh, Pastor Ray Stedman. He tells a story uh, about a father who was showing his his son through a church building. He was walking uh, through the building. They were preparing to go to a church service that particular Sunday, and so he was showing his son around that particular church building. Uh, they came to a place where there was a plaque on the wall. And as the, the son looked up and saw that plaque on the wall, he asked his father a question. He said, Daddy, what's this plaque for that's on the wall? And of course, his father said, oh, that's, that's easy, son. Uh, it's called a memorial. It's a memorial plaque to those who have died in the service. And the little boy heard his daddy's words and uh, then asked a very insightful question. Well, Daddy... Which service did they die? The morning service or the afternoon service? You know, this morning, Paul is going to talk about uh, the, some of the practices that were going on in this early church there in Corinth. And he's going to specifically talk about two areas in which these uh, Christians were conducting themselves in their public worship gatherings. 
First of all, he's going to give us a practice to commend. And then secondly, he's going to give us a practice to correct. So the first half of this section, he's going to commend them on their obedience to him and God's will as believers gather together. And he's going to warn them about an area that he's particularly concerned about. But he's going to commend them that they have obeyed him in this area in the past. And he trusts that they will continue to do that in the future. So there's going to be a practice to commend. And then secondly, he's going to take most of this chapter and he's going to talk about a practice to correct. There's something that he commends and then there's something that he corrects. Uh, And that correction has to do with snobbery, with snobbery going on in the church. And this louder practice of snobbery and division and social cliques that were going on in this church actually were so severe that Paul is going to tell them that some in their midst, that some of these Christians that were committing this snobbery, if you will, actually did die, actually did die at the hand of God because of their disobedience, because of their continuing sin. However, he doesn't specify whether it actually happened during the morning or the evening service, okay? Uh, So let's just uh, start. If you're taking notes, two big points, right? Two main sections, issue number one and issue number two. First of all, Paul is going to talk about issue number one, and it's the issue of head coverings. It's the issue of head coverings, and it is a practice that he is going to commend them for doing, although he is concerned that some of the women in the church may not do that. So the first issue that he's going to deal with is head coverings. Uh, Mark Twain, we're, we're all, I think, familiar uh, with what he has done in his writings. He was uh, full of... Uh, full of humor and wit, and uh, there's a story that I'd like to share with you. One time he was uh, having a, a debate, so to speak, a lively conversation with a Mormon acquaintance of his. And uh, that Mormon acquaintance was kind of pushing him into an argument over the issue of polygamy, which is uh, being married to more than one person, of course. And so they were kind of going back and forth, and as the story goes, after long and tedious expositions justifying the practice, the Mormon was arguing for uh, polygamy. He, he posed a challenge, and he posed a challenge to Mark Twain, and he said, okay, can you cite me any one passage of Scripture, just one passage of Scripture forbidding the practice of polygamy? Can you do that? And Mark Twain, with his wit, which was well known, said, Nothing easier. Nothing easier. No man can serve two masters. You know, uh, we say that in jest, and of course it was a, a witty comment. And yet, the joke kind of sheds light on the reality that some women, both in the church and in their home, have a difficult time following leadership, in particular, following male leadership. And I think Paul is going to talk about this as he deals with the issue of head coverings. He's going to talk about the role of men and women in the church, and he's going to address, I think, a problem that he foresees being a possibility. We don't know if this is what was going on, but I think he's addressing a possible concern about what was going on in this church. So I want to share with you what I think was going on in this church. And uh, before we do that, I I have to give a a brief caveat. Um, In my times that I spent uh, studying this passage, there are a variety of views on this particular section. Uh, Most of the time, I don't say these kind of things, but there's a lot of different opinions. So I humbly submit to you what uh, my best understanding of what is going on, and I ask that you would 
read the scripture and come to an understanding of what you think is going on. But here is what I think was happening or potentially happening in this church. Paul addresses a problem that he foresees, and this is what I think was going on. Women in the church gatherings possibly were, or he was fearful of them discarding or not wearing their head coverings. Now, what was that all about? Well, from what I can find, and the best that we know, is that oftentimes in that culture, both for Jewish women and Roman women in general, uh, commonly wore a head covering that was either a, a symbol specifically for a woman being married, or maybe even more generally, a symbol for a a particularly feminine dress. In other words, it was a distinctive garb that marked them apart as being a woman. So Paul was concerned. Paul was concerned that these women would not wear this as they came to gather for public worship. And he was concerned about it for a particular reason, I think. And that reason was that he saw that as tantamount to a public rejection of either their husband's leadership or the male leadership of the church. It could be a both and. I'd like to read what one commentator says because I think his words are helpful in helping us understand what's going on here. So Dr. Mark Lowry says this. He says, It seems that the Corinthian slogan, everything is permissible, we've seen that before, this freedom that they were seeking, it seems that the Corinthian slogan, everything is permissible, had been applied to meetings of the church as well. And the Corinthian women had expressed that principle by throwing off their distinguishing dress. Notice what he says. By throwing off their distinguishing dress. More importantly, they seem to have rejected the concept of subordination within the church. And with it, any cultural symbol such as a head covering, which might have been attached to it. So I think this is the the situation, the scenario, that Paul is going to address. Uh, As we go through this section, we're going to read it in small sections, because what we see is that Paul is going to give these women and this church five reasons why the women in that day, in that culture, needed to wear their head coverings when they, when they went to church. So let's work our way through. The first reason he gives is what I will call the divine order of leadership. That is, there is a divine order, a God-mandated order of leadership, first of all, in the Godhead. What do I mean by that? Well, we profess that there is the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and that there are three persons but one God. But within the Trinity, there is a divine order of leadership. So we see that the Father, uh, in a sense, has authority over the Son and the Spirit, and that the Son, specifically, is subordinate to the Father. So let me ask you a, a quick question, Trinitarianism 101. Is Jesus any less God than the Father? Church, shake your head. No, okay? No, that's, that's not correct. Jesus is not any less God than the Father, and yet he submits himself to the leadership of the Father. There is equality of essence, but there is difference in role. And Paul is going to argue that not only is that true in the Godhead, but that is true in the church, and that is true in the home as well. That's reason number one. So let's read together verses 2 through 6 of chapter 11. He starts in verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. 
And then he begins to apply this to their situation. Verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off and her head shaved, then she should cover her head. So he argues, essentially, that there is an order of leadership both in the church and in the family. Moving on, he gives a second reason. What's the second reason why these ladies should do that? Well, I would argue, and Paul argues, it's from creation order. That is, what does the order of creation, male and then female, teach us about what's going on in the church and in the home? Well, he's going to argue from creation that this is true, verses 7 through 9. Let's read this together. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Well, what does that mean? Well, he explains it. Verse 8, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was, there, neither was man created for woman, but woman for a man. So he argues from the creation order that there is a sense of leadership both in the home and in the church. So he says there is an order in the Godhead. There's creation shows us this. And then verse 3, we find this really interesting phrase. He says that the women in that culture needed to do this because angels were watching them. That's what he says. It's amazing. He says, angels are watching you as a church. Notice what he says, verses 10 through 12. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, the Lord in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Of course, we need each other, right? Verse 12, for as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So he lays out this argument. The angels are watching you, church. And so you need to obey me. Number four, he says there's an argument from nature. Nature itself is indicative that the women of that day should do this. Verses 13 through 15. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice nor do the churches of God. So that's number four, nature is indicative. And then number five, we read it in verse 16. He says, it's just normal church practice in that day, in that culture, for women to do that. He says, this is normal for that day. So, there probably are a lot of questions spinning around in your head. Join the club. I've had lots of questions spinning around my head as I've studied this. Um, In a sermon, I cannot answer all of them. So here's an open invitation. Call me. Let's talk about this. But the question that is maybe dominating your thought at this point, as it has been dominating mine, is this question. Is this something that is for today? Is this something that Paul speaks to the women of today, that they should therefore cover their heads as they come into worship? Let me just check the crowd here. Okay, I don't see any women covering their head as of today. Uh, That's indicative of, hopefully, an interpretation of, and a decision that you have made on this passage. Because we can't just ignore it, right? We can't just say, 
no, I don't like that passage. We have to do something with it. So here's, here's my answer. I, I, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, I say no. Uh, this is not something that is something we have to practice today. That is the practice of head covering. However, what is the principle behind the practice? Because that, I think, is timeless. That, I think, we are bound to. What is the principle behind the practice? Well, let me read another, uh, another commentator by the name of Dr. Constable. I think he puts it well, answering this question. He says, in the case of head coverings, the issue is women's position in the life of the church, and I would argue also in marriage, if particularly, in particular, their relationship to the men. He says, in modern society, no item of clothing consistently identifies a woman's acceptance or rejection of her role in God's administrative order. Let me say that again because that's key. In our culture, no item of clothing consistently identifies a woman's acceptance or rejection of her role in God's administrative order. He goes on to say this. He says, at least none does in Western culture. It is usually her speech and her behavior that do that. The important thing is her attitude towards her womanhood and how she expresses it, not whether she wears a particular item of clothing, end quote. And I agree with Dr. Constable. So how do we then apply this? What is the, what is the principle, right? What is the principle behind the practice? Well, let me suggest to you that this is the principle behind the practice. It's this. We need to joyfully accept God's design for us in marriage and church life. And this is speaking both to men and women. And so I want to spend just a few minutes thinking about how this applies both to women and to men. Primarily, Paul is speaking to women, but I think there is a uh, tertiary application for us guys too. So first of all, let me speak to uh, the women, and and particularly let me speak to two wives. Part of the difficulty with this passage is that in the Greek, Paul uses a word, and the same word is used for wives and for women. And so we don't know if he's talking about wives or women. I think he's generally talking about women. However, I think it's safe to see that this design shows up both in the the church life and in the marriage life. So first of all, wives. Wives, we need to accept God's design. Accept God's design for your marriage. So I want to just ask you a few questions and then recommend an article that I have for you in the back. So Gary's going to make sure that you get it if you want it on your way out. Uh, Do you accept God's design for your role in the marriage? Uh, Do you support your wife, your husband, excuse me? Do you support your husband? Do you submit to your husband? Do you treat him with respect? Do you honor him in your actions, in your words, in your tone of voice, with your attitudes? What about your willingness to follow him, even when you don't quite see eye to eye? Uh, What I would recommend is, on your way out, there's an article from Barbara Rainey. I think it's an excellent article. It's by no means exhaustive. But it points out about four or five different roles that I think are biblically supported for a wife in a marriage. And so it's not exhaustive, but it's helpful. It's a good outline. Uh, So pick that up on the way out. Uh, secondly, women, not only uh, do we need to accept our, the design for marriage, but accept the, God's design also in the life of the church. I think specifically, that's what Paul was talking about here. We need to accept God's design for you in the life of the church. And so I want to ask a few questions. Do you show respect and a willingness to follow the male leadership, in particular, uh, of this church? Or do you seek to sway or usurp 
qualified, that's a big word, qualified male leadership in the church. In other words, what is your relationship to the men in the church? I think that's what Paul specifically is addressing. So, women, I'm going to let you off the hook for a second, and men, I'm going to put you now squarely on the hook, because if there's a role for women both in marriage and in the life of the church, by default, that means there's a role for men as well, right? There's a role for husbands in marriage, and there's a role for men in the church. So, men, let me begin by saying this. Husbands, we need to accept also God's design in marriage. If you've been a part of our men's ministry, which is ongoing, Here's a shameless plug. Every other Saturday morning, next Saturday morning, we're going to gather together at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning. We're going to have a wonderful manly breakfast with lots of grease, and uh, we're going to share good stories, and we are going to study biblical manhood. That's what we've been doing. And so, men, do you accept God's design for you in marriage? How are you at leading sacrificially? How are you doing at laying down your life dying to yourself to serve your wife and to serve the needs of your family? Are you putting her needs first, her desires first? Are you leading by loving and laying down your life for her? That's, in my humble opinion, biblical leadership. It's sacrificial leadership. It's servant leadership. And so men, you get an article as well. So on your way out, husbands, Grab that. It's about the biblical role for the husband in the marriage relationship. Secondly, men, we also need to accept God's design for us in the church. So let me just challenge us. Men, we need to lead in the church. I don't know how else to say it. We need to lead in the church. Are you seeking to lead in the church? You don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be a deacon to lead in the church. Are you leading your family spiritually? Are you pushing your family to church, or is your wife dragging you to church? Are you initiating in ministries in the the life of the church? Are you leading in spiritual conversations, or are we just simply stepping back and letting the women do all the work in the church? Men, if we are, it should not be so. Are you pursuing accountability through church membership? Here, the way it works at Grace is that to become an an elder or a deacon, you have to be a member of the church. And men, we want you to aspire to be these if God so calls you and gifts you. But you can't be if you're not pursuing accountability through membership. So let me challenge some of you men to consider that. Men, are we leading the church as God calls us to do? So Paul's covered in 16 or 15 difficult verses the first issue. He's covered this first issue of head coverings. It was a practice to commend. He transitions now to a to- not a totally unrelated subject. It's still within the realm of how the church functions when they come together. But he turns a page to the issue of communion. Paul actually talks about the communion life of this church as he heard about it. And it's not a practice to commend. In fact, it was a practice that he wanted to correct. Not that they were taking it how they were taking it. So let's read together, starting in verses 17 through 34. Paul is going to talk about the snobbery, the snobbery that was happening in this church and how it was showing up in communion. Um, I think all of us, at some point in our life, uh, have experienced snobbery or maybe cliques or social distinctions, whether it be in middle school or high school or 
in the life of a small town, or unfortunately, maybe even in church. We experience division and cliques and people dividing along lines that are unacceptable. I remember when I was, uh, uh, when I was 12 years old, roughly, we started to go to a new church. Uh, if you've ever switched churches before, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do. And I don't recommend it, okay? Stay here. <laughs> um, but it's a hard thing to do. And my parents uh, switched us to uh, a Baptist church. And it was not a local church. That is, uh, it wasn't in the town that I was living in. It was in a town about 10 or 15 miles away. And it was in the center of a school district that I didn't go to. And so I started attending this church, and I didn't, we didn't know anybody. Uh, we, uh, I certainly didn't know any of the teenagers in the youth group. Uh, Mom and dad insisted that we get plugged in, and so I started going to youth group, much against my will, because I wasn't a Christian. Um, But I had to go, so that's what you do. Um, And I don't want to share a whole ton of stories, but the long and short of it is that there was quite the distinction between those people who went to that church, who lived in that town. It was a suburb of Corpus Christi, very affluent. The people who lived in in this town, this suburb, who went to our church, for the most part, worked in the city, commuted to the city, and were quite wealthy. They didn't want to live in the city limits. So what do they do? They move to the suburbs. That's what people do. And so this was a wealthy, affluent, uh, suburban community. And here was uh, a family from small town, high school of 200 people, um, not a very wealthy community. I mean, mom and dad were well off. I mean, they were well off. But we, you know, we weren't super wealthy like many of the people who went to this church. And uh, it was a very difficult thing for me because I saw in the youth group and to some degree in the church divisions along social lines. Those who were wealthy hung out together. Those who were not from the town didn't hang out together. And so we were kind of left to fend to ourselves. All that to say is that this can even happen in churches. And this was happening in the church of Corinth. And the divide was along money. The divide was was along social lines. So let's see what Paul's going to say. Verses 17 through 22, he explains the situation. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Stop. What what did he just say? He says, I'm not going to praise you. When you come to church, it's doing more harm than good. Wow. Did you catch that? He's like, when you come together, and, and specifically he's talking about a, a, what was called a, Christian, a love feast. The Christians would have essentially a, a big potluck, just like we do. You bring your stuff and you eat together, and then they would take communion. They would partake in the bread and the wine after the meal. And he says, when you come together as a church, the way that you're acting, you better just don't come because you're worse off. So we know that this is serious. Let's continue reading. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. <clears throat> no doubt, there, has, there have to be differences among you to, sh- to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead and with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't pass that over. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? That's the point. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So what was going on? Again, Dr. Lowry, 
uh, excuse me, Dr. Constable is helpful. This is what was going on. The Lord's Supper was usually, he says, a part of the meal the Christians shared together, the so-called love feast. In Corinth, instead of sharing their food and drinks, each family was bringing its own and eating what they had brought. So think potluck, right? The result, and here's the point, the result was that the rich had plenty to eat and the poor had little, that is, they were hungry and suffered embarrassment as well. This was hardly a picture of Christian love and unity. Furthermore, some with plenty of wine to drink were evidently drinking too much. They got drunk. They were eating their own private meals rather than sharing their food, a meal consecrated to the Lord. So do you get a picture of what's going on? The people who are rich, they brought a ton of food and it was like steak and shrimp and lobster and they're gobbling it all up. And then here is poor family over here and they bring peanut butter and jelly. And they're not sharing, right? They're eating their stuff. Peanut butter and jelly. They're not sharing their stuff. Oh, I've got, I have good wine. I have a t- I've got a lots of wine. I'm not going to share it. I'm going I'm to consume too much and get drunk at this love feast. And Paul says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. He's spoken of their snobbery. As we move on in verses 23 through 26, he's going to share with them what communion is all about. 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He essentially says, what communion is to display is the selfless, sacrificial death of Jesus for our sins. And what have you been doing? You've been acting selfishly, right? In the very thing that's supposed to be a symbol of selflessness in unity, there's one body, there's one loaf, there's one cup, there's one body. What were they doing? They were disunified, right? Do you see that this is not compatible? That's what Paul says. And so he offers a very practical solution to end the chapter, uh, both theologically and practically. He says, self-examination must precede communion for the believer. He's going to say, think about what you're doing as a Christian before you partake of the elements. And specifically for them, he says, think about how your selfish actions are hurting other people. Think about how your selfish actions are causing divisions in the church. Think about how your selfish actions are causing cliques and social distinctions. He says, examine yourself. And then he also says, share your food, right? Very practical. Verses 27 through 34. He wraps it up this way. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and are sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That is, they died. Verse 30, 31. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves we would not come under such judgment. 
Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So here's the practical conclusion. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. So eat at the same time and share your food. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. And so here is a a couple principles. The first principle that we see is from verses 17 through 22. Principle number one, beware of divisions or cliques in the church among social lines. So this is something we have to to self-examine. That's what Paul specifically says, is are we acting in any way in a selfish manner and causing divisions or cliques or uh, embarrassment in the life of the church? And so I think we need to begin to ask ourselves some questions Um, Are there people that we consciously avoid or maybe even unconsciously avoid in church because they're just not like us? They don't have kids like we do. They are not on the same social status as we do. They're not in our friendship group. We're not comfortable with them. Are we going to people who are outside of our comfort zone to talk to them, to make them feel welcome, people that we don't know? And if we aren't, are we not reinstating reinforcing social divisions, just like what Paul talked about. So we need to be aware of this as well. And the second principle is is simple. It's going to lead us into a time of reflection for communion. And the second uh, second principle is this. We need to examine, we need to examine our life regularly, both for sin against God and for sin against others, especially before communion. And so this is what we're going to do for the time that we have remaining. The elements of communion are before us. Uh, First of all, I want to talk to those of us in this room who are Christians. We have made a personal faith commitment to Jesus Christ, his life uh, and his death and his burial and resurrection for our sins. We personally have come to know him. And so let's examine ourselves as Paul tells us to. First of all, against others. Are we... Are we in any way dividing the church? Are we in any way causing social divisions or cliques within the church? Do we need to apologize to anyone for ignoring them or leaving them out? Second, uh, sins against God. Is there something, some kind of behavior or an attitude that it's not just, oh, I recognize it's sin and I repent and I ask God for forgiveness. It's a rebellious sin. Is there something in our lives where we say, God, I know this is what you want and I don't care. I'm going to do it my own way. That's what... The Corinthians were doing, and he says, don't do that. Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Repent from that sin. And so we're going to take some time to prepare and examine ourselves. Secondly, if you're here, and you're not sure you're a Christian, you're here, and you're not sure you've personally entered into a relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, if you're not sure about that, I'm going to begin to pray and lead us in a short time of prayer. And you can pray with me. You can pray with me a prayer that's not a magical prayer, but it's a prayer of faith expressing your desire to repent of your sin, to repent of running your own life, to repent of your rejection of Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And you can pray to God and you can become a Christian. And then you can feel free to partake of the elements. But if you're here and and you know you're not a Christian, then we ask out of respect for what this means that you not partake. But if you are, After a time of examination, we invite you. We invite you to come to remember what Christ has done, to remember that his body was broken and that his blood was spilt. And we proclaim the good news that forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God and new life is available through faith in Christ. And we thank God 
for what he's done in our life. So let's pray, and then take some time to examine, and then feel free to come as you're ready. So let's pray together.